0: Podcast. I'm your host and cinematographer, Jared Levy. We are sponsored by Masters of Motion. This week is with cinematographer Baz Baziruine. His most recent work uh, has been The Mandalorian, which was out on Disney Plus. Obviously, a uh, massive success, part of the Star Wars universe. And he has recently wrapped up season two, so there's going to be more of his work coming when when the new season comes out. Um, the the, on the technical side, it was made famous with its use of virtual sets and that technology. We, we go into detail about that. Um, really fascinating to chat with him about it and his, his take on it. And really one of the projects that's at the forefront of using the technology on such a regular basis uh, for such a high profile and um, consistently shot uh, work. So very cool to talk with him about that. Uh, also great to speak with him about um, his whole career. You know, he, he is the classic working his way up through camera department, Um, But he spoke about in the beginning that he got advice to not do that quickly and to really take your time. And he took that to heart. And he was an an AC for 20 years. And in that time, I think it really worked out great for him because he, he managed to work with some of the best. You know, he was an AC for Steven Soderbergh for many, many films in which we get into, as well as Robert Elswit and many others, but in terms of some of the films that he's been a part of, you know, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Ocean's Eleven, Solaris, Suriana, Michael Clayton, There Will Be Blood, um, the list is long, and it really is a testament to the type of people, the type of excellent Hollywood um, masters that always wanted Baz on their sets, and that he, what he was able to glean from that as he transitioned to his own DP career, which, of course, after many years of being an AC, he's now helming... Um, one of the main Star Wars worlds, and so in in the Mandalorian. So that is um, really a testament to to his his craft and talent and uh, work ethic. and And it was really great to chat with him about all of that and hear how you navigate that type of that type of um, journey. Especially, you know, I think once you start to be a role for a long time, people really only think of you that way. And so to make that leap, it only gets harder the longer that you stay um, in a different role than the one you want. And so, uh, just fascinating to hear him talk about to talk about all that. And um, in other news, this will be the last episode in this particular run. Uh, Want to give a uh, huge thanks and shout out to our producer Christina Valdiviozzo, who has kept the uh, the trains running and kept them running on time. She has pulled in such incredible um, guests, and you know, I think this season we really had our breakthrough moment with so many ASC cinematographers, um, people at such a high level, uh, so many of them bringing in such a wealth of knowledge. And for those who have been listening over the last five years on and off, know that um, that's new for the show. And so huge testament to Christina for for doing that and for um, being just an unbelievable uh, partner and producer. So thank you to her. And um, lastly, you know, I think we all have a um a duty for those with any sort of platform whether it be our own personal social media platforms or if we do something that's a bit more public like this and um that is especially for me as a white person just to be an ally and obviously you know nothing is done in a vacuum neither is this podcast um i tried to record this opening just yesterday and there were protests out on my street which i support and um so i just want to say that um you know Black Lives Matter, and you should say it out loud. And so here is uh, our week's, uh, this week's episode with Baz Edoine. Thanks for being here. I've only been asking this question now that we're kind of dealing with the uh, pandemic and staying inside. I've been finding it interesting to chat with um, people who are in the uh, industry and if they're how they're handling their time, um, if they're thinking about getting back to work, in what ways, um, and if there might be any, you know, programs that you're learning or picking up in in the spare time, how are you handling the time off?
1: I have been, uh, to be honest, cooking too much, gardening too much, uh, but enjoying (laughs) that. I was lucky to, uh, the lockdown happened about just under a week after we wrapped Mandalorian, so I was kind of ready for a break. And uh, I was fortunate not to be sick, or for anyone of my family to be sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we um, uh, maybe that was how the first few weeks was uh, we were enjoying it because it was the the welcome time off. Right. Uh, since then, yes, I've been taking stills more. Uh, Cynthia, my wife, uh, converted one of her. Sony A7s to infrared. So we've been playing with that a lot. Oh, that's cool. Um, And I've been participating in um, uh, quite a few Zoom calls talking about uh, new practices, uh, post COVID set practices, et cetera. Mm. In fact, I've got one this afternoon. The ASC has uh, got a a new committee about that, about the new set practices. So I've sat in on a couple of those. on those meetings, it's been very interesting.
0: Yeah, anything really stand out besides what the uh, the common stuff that we're hearing about <laughs> the protocols?
1: No, nothing you know there's been obviously every week there's a new piece of information, yeah, either medical or some other fact that has sort of swung the direction one way or the other. So yeah, I certainly think the next month is going to be telling in regards how much contact we can have with each other.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I mean, obviously, DPs are concerned about maintaining the quality of a photographic image whilst keeping everybody safe. So it's it's a matter of trying to keep the priorities right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, I'm not talking about diminishing the health priority, but, uh, but not forgetting about the, the priority of keeping a strong photographic quality to everything we shoot
0: yeah no we're in definitely challenging times, and I'm curious how things are going to start going once we actually do open and we start to get reports from the first sets that are open and how it's going and seeing um the results of those in the next you know six to twelve months and if we can if we can tell you know that things are a little different uh well cool um going going back, I wanted to start kind of at the be- the beginning of your career and noticing how you had a really classic run through camera department um, and I was curious. Just in that choice alone with camera department um, at the beginning, assuming that your goal was to be a director of photography eventually, what made you choose camera over kind of coming up through G&E? How how did you make that that decision back in the day?
1: Uh, When I was in high school, uh, I was involved in a theater group and I decided that uh, I wanted to be involved in the entertainment business in some fashion. I didn't know how at that point. Uh, I didn't have a strong photography bent when I was um, a teenager. Uh, so I started working at TV New Zealand when I was uh, late teens, um, early, around about 20. I didn't go to, uh, well, I went to university briefly, but that didn't stick. Um, but I didn't go to film school or, or any other type of film school. Um, so I worked at TV New Zealand for a couple of years and then I worked on a couple of films in, uh, in New Zealand and just as a PA, and then I uh, was making a move to – I was trying to get to London overland from New Zealand, which is sort of an uh, adventurous journey that a lot of Kiwis like to do. Mm. So, and uh, I got stuck at my first stop, which was Sydney, so I wasn't very successful on that trip. But while I was there, I, uh, I worked on uh, uh, a few projects as a, as a PA, and, um, and on one of them, I met a DP called Paul Murphy, who was, uh, uh, a very inspiring person. And, um, uh, he was teaching me things whilst I was working with him as a PA, not in the camera department. And I thought that, uh, I was fascinated with every day I would go to work and might get my mind blown about what I didn't know about cameras and camera work and, and the understanding of that. So I spent two years working for Paul, um, full-time, uh, which was a great entry position because he was a great cinematographer and was trained by people working with him, John Platt and uh, David Williamson. David Williamson, the operator, was very old school, and he told me one of the things that he told me early on, which was that don't try and rush through the, the camera department too, too quickly. You should try and learn as much as you can, and perhaps stay in each step of the hierarchy perhaps longer than what you think. Um, And I know there's a lot of people that would not agree with that now because they say, you know, if you can be a 22-year-old DP and go out and start doing it, that's great. But the experience that I developed over the course of those years meant that um, uh, it it stood me in great stead.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that that was definitely going to be one of the topics that I wanted to discuss, um, because you had such a prolific run as a first AC. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into the details of all of that. Um, How many, you know, all of the great DPs that you worked with and the great um, films that you were on. And I could, and it's just fascinating now kind of taking that next that next turn. um, And I was always curious to ask why. And it seems like it really was rooted from the very beginning with this relationship and this advice.
1: That was a strong part of it. David Williamson's advice was a strong part of why I why I did stay like that. But you'll see that the, the DPs that I worked with, um, I did a few interesting projects in Australia, and then um, where I lived for eight years, and then I had the opportunity. I worked with Dean Semler on a uh, a film in uh, Easter Island. We were on Easter Island for six months, pre-internet, seven telephone lines one plane a week. Uh, It was an extraordinary, unusual, isolating experience. But on that, I got to meet um, Dean and the director, Kevin Reynolds. And so they asked me to come and work on Waterworld, which I did. And um, uh, then once I was in the US in 94, I worked on Waterworld and and, uh, a couple of other projects with Dean, which was really exciting. And then... um, then I had an opportunity to meet uh, Steven Soderbergh on uh, Out of Sight. I was asked to come in and, and uh, focus pull for the last month and a half of the film because uh, Dwayne of the A-camera focus caller, had to leave for another project. And um, it was fun. I got to work with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, and but S- Steven especially, which I found extraordinarily invigorating. To work with somebody who, who loved the dramatic, pur- pur- uh, the dramatic process so much, but also was just this consummate filmmaker. Yeah. So a few a few months later, I got a phone call from uh, this random person. Said, "Hey, I'm making a film. I want you to come and work on it." And uh, he said his name at the beginning, and I said, "I'm sorry, it was well, first name. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Who is this? I don't recognize the voice." said, Stephen Soderbergh. So he wanted me to come and work on Erin uh, Brockovich. So, so that sort of started without a side a run of about six years I did with um, with Stephen, and we made some great films. And we went through that process where Stephen decided that he wanted to start shooting films. So, uh, that was that was a lot of fun where Jim Planet and myself. Basically supported Stephen through that process. Oh, that's it. Um,
0: I didn't I didn't realize that that Jim was on those because I've had Jim on the show too, and we 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 talked throughout his whole career. And before we before we get too deep, I kind of wanted to, to to break this these kind of stuff this kind of stuff down and kind of go into it. Um, in terms of, w- would you consider that call um, your your big break in terms of being a first AC, um, or did it kind of come before then? And, and is that as a first AC? Is that big break really more in associated with um, a relationship with the DP, you think, versus, you know, some sort of, some really great project?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, it's a bit hard to say that there were, until maybe recently, in the last few years, but we'll get to that, as a first I see big breaks, because, you know, I worked with some great DPs during the course of the year. Maybe the first big break was not when I was a first, but I was a clapper loader and Paul, Paul Murphy asked me to, to work for him because um, he saw tenacity and energy and drive, willingness to learn. Um, and those were sort of tenets that I tried to maintain through, I've tried to maintain through all of my career actually. So, it was. A, I think getting a phone call from Steven Soderbergh to pull focus for him is a is a big break. You can't deny that. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm and I'm not trying to diminish that, um, but uh, I think that that would that was the that was the first big break as a focus puller. I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then um, on on and Brokovich with Steven directing and being. Uh, Director of photography being Ed Lockman, um, obviously also being able to work with him m- must have been um, fantastic. What do you think from from working with Ed? Any um, specific advice that you think you got from him, or, or takeaways just from working with him that you can that you feel like you might have taken with you since that collaboration?
1: Uh, it, yeah, it's a it's an interesting character. Uh, he um, shoots beautifully. Uh, I. Um, I did a couple of films with Ed, and um, uh, I really love his. I really love his work.
0: Speaking about that relationship with with Soderbergh, and then having that moment where he says, "You know, I'm I I was directing, and I w- want to now also pick up the the cinematography aspect." Being the first AC and dealing with someone that is handling both of those roles, I'm curious if that put um, an extra burden on your shoulder, and if so, in what ways. Um, do you think that it kind of puts you in a different in a different place than if you than if it was more traditionally the director and DP separate for you as the first?
1: Oh, absolutely! I had more responsibilities. After we ran, wrapped Aaron Brockovich, a few only a few weeks or a month after we wrapped, he called me into his office and he said he was he had this other little film that was about to happen very quickly and he was thinking about shooting it himself, and uh, and he likes to operate, so he operates. Uh, directs, writes, produces, edits, uh, and he wanted to shoot as well. So I had a great relationship with uh, Laurie Killam at Panavision, as I have had for 25 years, and and I knew people at the lab. And well, I can't remember which lab we used initially. I'll have to go back and have a look at that. Um, and so I was very happy to... to carry an extra, uh, burden of work because it just it meant that I had more to learn, more to do, um, more to understand and, and, and I love that. What, what
0: were those extra things? How, how is it different?
1: Well, dealing with the lab, dealing with the, uh, camera rental house, um, making decisions about, um, uh, not making decisions on my own, but making decisions about which ideas I would present to him as photographic techniques or technologies that we would explore or use in the film um, and being part of that collaborative process with him about how to uh, how we wanted the, the film to look. Uh, Traffic was that first film. So Traffic obviously had a very particular look, uh, three different looks which uh, were very extreme, but he knew it was an extremely complex f- story and narrative thread and he wanted it to be very clear between those three different looks of, of how, of where we were, where the, where the viewer was in the film. So very quickly they would understand where they were, um, that sort of tobacco stained look uh, or nicotine stained look of, of the Mexico cartels, the, the blue uncorrected, uh, basically shooting the film without an 85. So day, daylight, uh, tungsten corrected film in a daylight sense. So it was very blue. Mm-hmm. Um, And, uh, and then the third look was the,
0: gosh,
1: was that the San Diego look, which was just clean?
0: I think it might've been.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. So with the, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so it was the, the, the fact that I had to deal with the lab, I had to deal with the rental house. Um,
0: no, it's exciting that you're picking up on the creative aspects of prep, which you know, obviously goes a long way to impacting the look, and I could see that being the building blocks towards uh, just DP responsibilities, DP mindset, a way of thinking. Um, that must have been a really great kind of bridge almost. Were you viewing it that way?
1: I, When I was in Australia, before I'd moved to the U.S., I had shot my first little film, a little uh, five or six six minute film that was uh, based upon the lead theme song from Elevator to the uh, to the Scaffold, and um, uh, very simple uh, story about a jazz trumpeter and his girlfriend, but the main character was the music and. Um, and it was wildly crazy, and and, and uh, my first little film and and uh, uh, on film borrowed the thirty five mil package from uh, from Paul Murphy, and, and um, I knew that I wanted to do that, and so I was very happy to go back to focus pulling for a while while to learn more before I could go back to shooting again. So then working with with uh, Stephen. Um, it gave me the opportunity to stretch those skills about understanding more about what was involved with being a DP. Um, Sadly, one of the things that didn't happen, because Paul was the director, DP, operator, there were conversations that happened in his head about uh, how he wanted to shoot a scene that normally... As a focus puller, you'd be party to that conversation. You'd be listening to the conversation between the DP and the director and the operator, and they'd be talking about all of the different aspects of how they would shoot or cover a scene. And quite often, that conversation nobody yeah. else in the world is ha- happening. But in what through. was exactly? But but it's I understood Stephen, and he understood me, and so we became very um, we worked very well together. I remember. Uh, Quite regularly, on, on, on a regular standard basis. Uh, once I would learnt how he worked, um, I was always one or two steps ahead of him in regards where we would move the camera to next, what would be the next shot we would do, what would be the next lens we would do, whether we would just stay in situ and tighten up. Or um, so, uh, in that respect, uh, I learnt how he sh- how he shot, and and uh, and I think that was great for me.
0: Yeah, no, and it's so cool. I mean, the, some of the films that you guys worked on are some of my favorites. I mean, Ocean's Eleven is, is just an instant classic, and I, I absolutely adore it. Um, what do you think, just thinking about Stephen overall and your relationship and doing all those films together, what do you think you took away from it that you brought with you further further down the line? Um, what do you think he taught you?
1: Uh, well, it was interesting. One of the things that, that I loved that he uh, actually did he, he, he completed to that degree. At this stage, uh, Dogma 95 was coming out or had just, had just come out in the last year or two before that. So that was a conversation that we were having a lot. Um, and he had always talked about trying to make a film with the whole package of equipment that was required for the film, camera grip, electric, props. Everybody was in one truck and they would just drive around Wherever they went, so he was always trying to get smaller and smaller and smaller the way he did things. And I didn't work on it, but on Che, he made the film almost in that sense. He wanted to shoot the film with two lenses. Um, I can't remember what those lenses. That was he used that on the Red, so I, I think it was it was like a forty and a hundred, mm-hmm. or a forty and a forty and a seventy-five. Uh, if it was anamorphic, I wasn't on the film, so I don't, uh, I don't quite remember. But we um, we had started developing that idea a, a year or two beforehand or a couple of years beforehand about the idea of just trying to shoot everything on two lenses. And um, it was an interesting challenge. So trying to keep things simple or small. I shot a film last year um, that's going to get released in a month or two, a very low-budget f- film for a, a good friend of mine. Uh, Charles Erlinger and um, called a lone wolf about a guy who's been shut in, um, or or is a shut in. Uh, interesting film for these times. Yeah, totally. Um, and I shot that virtually on two lenses. Uh, I tried to shoot most of the film on one lens, but uh, I think I ended up. Oh, I might have been more than two. It might have been two or three. But I had a, quite a small lens package by choice.
0: Yeah. Something that you pulled from from working with Stephen that 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 kind of makes sense knowing how he goes, he's been stripping it back and back and back to shooting on on a phone, <laughs> it seems to be mm-hmm. he's been on that path for a while. Well, that that's great. I it's cool to talk about that relationship with Stephen. I I also wanted to talk about um, the one you had with Robert Elswit, um, you know, working on There Will Be Blood, um, Syriana. Um, I mean, there's so many Michael Clayton, uh, Mission Impossible. It, it's it's kind of incredible. And I guess in terms of the comparative aspects being the AC for both of those people, was that a um, very similar experience? And and if it wasn't in what ways did it differ and how is it to work for, for um, personalities that might be, you know, different.
1: I loved working with Steven because he loved actors. He loved the actors process and All of his films, it was about creating this incredible protective environment around the camera where the actors are that is womb-like so that the actors can peel off their completely, any inhibitions, their skin, so that they can Mm -hmm. uh, expose themselves and play the most perfectly authentic performance. And it's perhaps... Performance is the most important part, I think, of any uh, authentic performance is perhaps the most important part of any film. I think even perhaps more so than photography, it's an anathema to what I am or what I do, but I try and create that environment. I always have since I learnt that. I knew it before I worked with Stephen, but it was so ingrained with me after working with him that if you don't have an authentic performance, then nobody wants to watch the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, after I'd worked with Stephen for about six years, then things changed. He didn't want to work with me again. So, well, didn't, I couldn't work on that next film. So, I was at home wondering what was going to happen. And I get this phone call from this guy. He's like, Oh, I was uh, sorry. I was uh, thinking I should. Uh... And um, so, it was Robert Ellsworth asking me to do a film down in New Orleans and so I was very excited and all I could think about was Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, I was so excited. Uh, you know, I, I humbly admit now and apologize to Robert that I was more excited when he ran (laughs) about working with Paul than I was working with Robert. Um, but, uh, Working with Robert was such a joy and delight because he was also very collaborative um, and such a stunning cinematographer. His uh, sense of naturalism and beauty and understanding of narrative and story, uh, it, it was just... He was such a masterful teacher for me that it was very interesting. I should backtrack after I finished with Stephen, I was thinking, okay, maybe it's time now that I go in and start shooting. I should go and make, I should become a DP now and make the transition. Um, and it seemed like a good thing to do. And then I got the phone call from Robert and that was like, Oh, or oh, maybe I could do a film with Paul Thomas Anderson and Robert. That would be exciting. That would be very exciting. They have such an old relationship. Robert having worked on all of Paul's films. And uh, so Oh, that was exciting okay so I'll, I shelved my uh, my DP aspirations for a little while
0: It's interesting that you eh. that you did that because I would imagine that you know as much as I understand working with Robert and Paul um, to to remain as an AC and knowing that that might delay you for years that that's a really interesting. I'm sorry. Um, can you
1: say that again? Because um, your podcast just started playing in the background. Oh,
0: oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I had I had something double going on in my headphones.
0: Oh no no, my mistake. Um, what I was going to say was that it's just it's just something that I wanted to sit on for a second because, while yes, it does make sense that you would want to do um, AC work like work with with Paul and, and Robert, that you are you were delaying your DP career most likely by years, if not many years. Um, and that's a big decision. It, what was the the? Why were you okay with that?
1: Well, I love focus pulling. Um, I was good at it, and and I, and I loved it. I had a crew of people that worked with me that I kept going from film to film. So it was like a little family. Um, yeah, it's a good reason. I I I. I I don't think I would realize – I don't think I – well, no, I, not I don't think. I know then that I didn't understand how fantastic it was being a DP. The last mm. th- three or four or five years that I've been shooting, uh, I have been so creatively satisfying and and I wasn't aware about how happy mm. it would make me back then Um that's interesting. And uh, so I didn't pursue it as hard as what I what I could have. But also the, the idea of working with, with Robert and, and Paul was intoxicating and um, so it was only mildly disappointing that it took five years of working with Robert before we ended up doing There Will Be Blood. Yeah, yeah. But I did do some good films on the way though So because uh, Siriano and uh, – Michael Clayton is one of the more perfect films out there, I think.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I agree. And, and I mean, what, what do you, in terms of that payoff, um, what do you think? You know, I, I'm going to keep asking this question just because of the um, incredible titans of the industry that you worked with. What do you think that you, you took away from working with, with Paul and, and watching him work and watching Robert work with him? What do you think the takeaways from that aspect of your career were? Wow.
1: Wow, uh, well, obviously Paul's a genius, uh, and uh, not that I'm saying Robert isn't, because uh, they both are. But uh, "There Will Be Blood" was like a life-changing experience for me. It was, it was obviously a film where Robert won Best Cinematography. Um, it was absolutely spellbinding, mind-blowing experience. Being on this small set in the middle of the vast Texan desert, with Paul and and um, uh, Daniel Lewis uh, and and all of the other supporting cast that were phenomenal, um, and watching these performances and being involved in that, and then and understanding. It's, by, it's like being in film school. I think that's one of the reasons why mm. being an assistant is so good and so enjoyable because yeah. it's like being in film school. With, working with the, the caliber of people that I was working with, uh, either Stephen or um, Paul or even Ed Lockman, certainly Robert, that you just – rather than being – I was never just a technician that showed up and, and – did my job I was I was a filmmaker who was a big sponge absorbing everything that I could from every day and whether it was understanding what that filmmaker let's say it's Paul what their approach was going to be what they thought about that scene would be the day before that they were the day before they were going to shoot it understanding what what their plan was and then understanding how they over overcome any obstacles that came on that day. Because every day, as every DP knows, it every filmmaker knows, every shooting day is about is about overcoming the all of the either myriad of little challenges or the big challenges that come in every single day that put a wrinkle in your plan. And so learning how these people went through how they prioritized their decision making. To overcome those challenges was the best experience, uh, the best learning experience. I think that uh, that I could have had. What do you uh, What I, do you think? I, ser- them I th- certainly think it's better better than. I'm not saying it's better than film school because quite often I, I regret as a young man young man not going to film school, but I certainly had a, the best learning experience with all of these great people that I worked with. What
0: What do you think sets them apart? In, in terms of how they handle that stuff, is there anything you can kind of put a pin on in for, for why they are tackling those things in, in it better than most? Well, I think it comes
1: down to personality. It's like that's a magic X factor you're talking about. Um, I think uh, it, it, it comes down to personality. You know, I've been on film sets with other people where I've seen poor decisions being made, and... Uh, it's just how you appreciate or prioritize those problems or those 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 factors to make the decision of how you overcome those problems. Yeah, yeah. I I I don't think there's any one thing that makes somebody no. a great a, a, a great filmmaker or leader.
0: Yeah, no, no, that that makes sense. And then I mean, it was with Robert that, in terms of that jump to operating, what you did on the Bourne Legacy. Um, What was that conversation like maybe with yourself in terms of it being time and then also with how you were able to achieve, um, the role switch?
1: I'd been shooting additional photography, uh, with Paul, uh, with Robert, um, for quite a few years, um, on any project that I could, I would, if we knew that they needed a shot of a plane flying into the airport, or whatever, whatever film it was, if there was an opportunity for uh, me to replace myself on a camera and to go out and to shoot for that half day or day or whatever it was of additional photography, I was trying to do it. I was, I, I was definitely ready. Um, uh, after, Because I worked with Robert for about 10 or 11 or 12 years. And so after about seven or eight, I was starting to get itchy and I wanted to start shooting. So I was um, just doing it in a small sense uh, of the additional photography. Um, I also shot uh, a couple of little short no-budget films that I don't know where they are now. I don't think they ever saw the light of day. Um, and so I knew that Bourne was going to be my last film as an assistant. And uh, so Robert gave me and, um, and Tony Gilroy um, gave me lots of additional photography moments or second unit moments to go out and shoot, which I did, which was great. Um, and so then um, when the when main unit wrapped in the Philippines, there was a month of second unit that was about to start. And so uh, I... Was invited by Dan Bradley the um, and Paul Hew and the DP Dan Bradley was the deep director to operate on uh, second unit. So I operated for a month on um, uh, on e camera. I went from a camera uh, focus board to e camera operator. Yeah, um, <laughs> which was it was great. I had a huge amount of fun and I loved it. And so then uh, basically I packed up my uh, camera assisting gear and um, changed my shingle to operator from camera system.
0: Yeah. And and at that point, you know, you were you had come to peace with the fact that that meant really no more AC, and that that was all right.
1: Yes, the sad thing that I that the the saddest thing for me was that because Robert likes to operate either A or B, but the non-steady cam camera, and he always has a steady cam operator to operate the other camera, and that he didn't want me to operate for him. The sad thing meant that I wouldn't be able to work for Robert again. Mm-hmm. So. um uh, I yeah, I, I was. I'm very. I'm still sad about that. I yeah. miss him dearly. No, we talk, we talk. We talk often.
0: It's it's nice to hear though, because you know, it's like with every, even with every um, goal that's accomplished, there is a sacrifice somewhere. Uh, it's what's required. Exactly. See.
1: So, but the good thing was is that then, so we wrapped born and. February or March of that year and then summer that year Paul was um, uh, shooting the master and uh, so he asked me for a lot of help while he was prepping it because Robert wasn't going to shoot it for him it was the first film that Robert wasn't going to shoot for him so he asked me for a lot of help to get it off the ground which I did. And uh, I was sorely tempted to go back to camera assisting, uh, but wanted to hold true to my feelings. So he actually got me to come in and shoot some additional photography during the, um, the shoot in L.A., and uh, which was really enjoyable, some stuff inside the big department store and some stuff out in the desert. Uh, and then I ended up shooting the last uh, week of the film that uh, we shot in Hawaii, which was the, the beginning and the middle of the film. So... That was a, a phenomenal break that Paul gave me, and I'm truly thankful for that.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like you've certainly put in the time to earn it from him and, and from the other people who gave you those breaks. Um, when you did move over to actual second unit DPing, in terms of your grasp on lighting, having come up through camera this entire time, what was it something where you were relying more on your gaffer and, and being more abstract in your, in your conceptualization of how you wanted the light to look or had you just picked up over the years and made a, made a point to pick up more specific aspects of that role? Because I, I, that's something that I'm always curious about for people who come up strictly through camera. Um, once you get to DPing, you're now in charge of this whole other department that you never really had that much interaction with, at least, you know, in terms of um, thinking about the work that they're doing. What, what was that like for you and how did you overcome that?
1: Well, certainly when I was working with Stephen, um, the... There was a there was a process around the camera where, um, uh, I if I wasn't involved in the conversation, I was certainly paying attention. Mm. Um, but I'd like to think that I was involved to some extent of this conversation between Jim Planet, myself, and and uh, Stephen about how that scene was going to get lit. Um, but but that goes back to the other. The first statement was that I was I was I was always listening. Is that I was always listening and I was always watching. Mm. Um, I was never standing just beside the camera um, doing camera stuff. My eyes and ears were open to everything, which I think is the appropriate um, eyes and ears open and mouth shut. Was the appropriate, <laughs> is the appropriate um, mantra for for anybody on a film set because you can learn about all of this stuff. So over the Course of the years of working with Robert and and Paul, um, uh, Robert and Stephen, that, that uh, I was well aware of what all the lighting units were and what they did and how they worked and what and, and what they um, and the grip units as to what um, what and how they should be utilized. So I, I didn't know exactly. I didn't. I didn't come from a gaffer background, but I had a I had a very clear strong idea about. Um, I had normally had a very good idea about what I thought the unit should be but I had a strong idea about what the quality of light should be
0: yeah and I mean you know it wasn't once you started second unity peeing you know to to do American Sniper and then to get Rogue One um, you're not exactly going on to you know small potatoes for for doing that that second unit dp work (laughs) by by any stretch um what was rogue one like Uh, going into it um were there was there trepidation about that or or did it feel you felt ready what what was it like heading into rogue one for second unit dp
1: backing up a little bit i had um been introduced on some commercials by a commercial producer to John Hillcoat, the Australian director, and he had uh, really enjoyed my uh, taste levels as an operator um, and my energy and enthusiasm and uh, willingness to 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 experiment and and and. And, and to get stuff done. We'd, and so we'd, we did quite a few commercials together. And, and then he, he took me on to a pilot that he was shooting for, for Showtime, I think, I can't remember, down, down in uh, Louisiana, that, uh, New Orleans. That was um, – uh, he basically wanted me to go out and shoot um, beauty work every day so that he could use it as either interstitials mm. or – uh, cutaways during scenes, which That's which fun. was great. He he then introduced me to Greg Fraser,
0: mm. and
1: uh, uh, Greg rang me up and said, "Hey, look, mate, I've got a, I want to use you on this commercial. John Hillcoat Hillcoat told me about you, but I, I don't think there's going to be any work for you. I like to operate, so you know." there won't be much to go on and I said okay I'll make a good tough tea so I'll I'll, I'll bring the tea (laughs) and so he actually operated the first morning and then I operated a couple of shots in the afternoon and then for the rest of the four or five day commercial I operated and he basically watched he enjoyed again what John had enjoyed uh
0: some high taste levels
1: when I was when I was operating and um my skill and just just I've always think I've got a lot of energy and enthusiasm on a film set yeah so then greg asked me to do rogue one um i felt very ready to do rogue one it was huge obviously yeah star wars it was london um and uh he had been shooting lion in uh, or he knew he was going to be shooting lion so uh, he didn't think that he was going to be able to prep all of rogue in london Will be there for all of prep, so he wanted me to go early so that he I could cover him, and uh, and that's because he knew then that uh, we worked very well together, hand in glove. We had uh, similar taste levels, uh, similar expectations or understandings of how we would shoot a scene and what we would need. So he was happy about for me to go and prep that, um, and yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. It was extraordinary. Um, And that's where we used, for the first time for me... Well, actually, on on, on Mission Impossible, we had used uh, some large LED panels for some car reflection work when we were shooting in Vancouver. But then in Rogue One, we obviously had those huge LED... an LED cyclorama, basically, Mm -hmm. that um, uh, for all of the cockpit work.
0: Yeah. Um, Was there a moment... You you felt comfortable heading 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 into it. It sounds like, which is which is amazing. Was there a moment um, that you can recall in in the midst of it where you know you really settled in?
1: I've had those moments on, on other projects where you pack the car, you're walking to work, and you think, I don't think I'm going to get fired. I think <laughs> I, th- I think I've I think I've got this right. Um, uh, no, on this project, I felt pretty good from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a phenomenal English production crew, ads, and so the support from them was spot on. Uh, Greg Greg's a genius and, and really fantastic to work with. He he uh, loves prep and preps the nth degree so that we can um, uh, not have the surprises that we uh, on set that can derail you.
0: In terms of that Uh, prep from a creative standpoint, because of course it was with Rogue One and then with The Mandalorian as well, which is both are interesting in the sense of being within the Star Wars universe but having some opportunity for for freedom uh, because of it being, you know, new stories. What, um, and and especially since for Rogue One you were there for prep um, covering for Greg, what were those conversations like with Greg about the approaches that you wanted to take on a visual level Um, how much were you, you know, trying to find the balance between paying, being true to the visual language that was set up within the canon and then having your, you know, own takes on it? What kind of conversations were those between you and Greg?
1: Well, to be honest, probably Greg had the conversations with Gareth Edwards about the visual language Mm -hmm. and then, and, and the reasons for it. And then he and I would have the conversations about the execution of it and how we would achieve that. Yeah. Um, we knew that we wanted it to be mostly handheld. Uh, there was a feeling of perhaps a battle of Algiers this sense of being in in, 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 in oh, i can't remember the word embedded in the um in, in the with with the, the fighting troops um, and so from that it was it was just about exploring uh, methodology so that we could have the camera right there in the thick of it for everything. Um, there was a great moment, um, in a long way out from prep, maybe eight months before we started shooting it, Greg and I had been talking about, we knew that the Alexa 65 was coming out. Uh, it, it Chivo still didn't have his up in, um, uh, Canada on, um, Revenant, but we'd heard that it was coming. Greg had been talking to Ari about it, so we were hoping that we would have one. But uh, I got a phone call from a very good friend of mine, Gregor Taverner, who um, was Bob uh, has been Bob Richardson's camera assistant for many, many years. Gregor and I were very good friends. Um, it's a funny side story. Greg, Gregor rang me one day out of the blue. I didn't know him. And he said, uh, hey, uh, I've heard about you. I've heard that you... Uh, uh, I've uh, heard that you've got the skills that I think would satisfy what I need I'm going off to work on another project and I need somebody to work with this guy that I work with a lot and I'm like yeah who's that <laughs> and uh, he, he's like well it's Bob Richardson so I was like okay yeah sure so we I did some commercials with Bob um, over the course of that next four or five months and then Bob and I, I sort of became Bob's LA commercial guy and Gregor was his film guy. And so I assisted with Bob for over a couple of years and then a camera operated for him for a few years as well. So uh, Gregor rang me up one day and says, hey, you've got to come to Panavision and check out these lenses that uh, that I'm playing with. They'll, they'll, they'll blow you away. So I, uh, uh, I went into Panavision and he had these crazy old pieces of glass that um, Dan Sasaki had resurrected by either unfreezing the glue by putting them in little small burning vats of methylated spirits or however it was that Dan extricated the glass from inside these old housings and then rebuilt them. And they were the uh, Ultra, Panavision, uh, Ultra Panavision 70s. That had worked for about ten films in the late fifties and early sixties, um, for a seventy mil film. It was Sixty-five they shoot it on seventy mil release, um, uh, and then, yeah, like they'd only worked on about ten films, and they'd sat on display sat in display cases at Panavision for the last forty years, and they used them. But Gregor and Bob used them on Hateful Eight. Mm. And these were stunning, stunning, beautiful old lenses, uh, massive amounts of character, either vignetting, optical intensity, uh, aberrations in odd places, delicate little beautiful beasties of little lenses. So when I went in and saw them, I always, I said, oh, Gregor, I want to come and be your friend and assistant for the next couple of days. And I helped him so that we could look at these lenses. He was there for a couple of weeks prepping the, the film, but I went in for a few days and just worked for free next to him, just reveling in the glory of these lenses. And uh, so then I rang Greg and I told Greg, I think he was in Australia, prepping lion and exactly sure. I said, next time you're in LA in the next couple of weeks, you've got to come and check out these lenses. They're insane. They're fantastic. Uh, and so we, he did, and we shot some tests and uh, on film. And then I think we got a pre-production release of a 60 area 65 camera. And we, um, we shot some more tests and decided that uh, those were the lenses for Rogue One. And so then I think we had the first, not if not the first, certainly uh, the early first couple of cameras of ARRI 65s that came out and we shot Rogue One with those lenses. And, and that, that level of detail to lens appreciation was, you know, one of the things that made Greg and I get on so well because loving these old characterful lenses is... I mean, it just makes the image so much more beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you take those on to Mandalorian? How did you, how did you both view the Mandalorian setup?
1: Uh, so no, no, was the short answer. We, um, in 2018, May, 2018, there was a big test of the LED wall technology. Um, and, uh, part of that test aside from merely checking the functionality of the whole system. And we should talk about that later yeah. was going through and trying to find a lens uh, and camera package, a sensor sizing lens package that would uh, um, make the wall work and uh, but still be attractive to shoot with. So uh, Greg and I decided uh, anamorphic was the way to go, um, but we were reluctant to use the... There's only a couple of sets of those old for Panavision lenses. And um, they... Uh, the 70mm lenses. And so we need we knew, we knew we needed more lenses. We were also concerned about shooting with a 65mm uh, sensor because there was... The wall isn't perfect. And to get an image with too much information in it, we were concerned it was going to display flaws or... Uh, more a or raster or yeah. just seeing the pixels so um, so we liked the Alexa LF but we couldn't find a lens that would work with it and I actually remember calling, the test was about 10 days long and I remember calling Dan about 4 or 5 days into the test Dan Sasaki of Panavision saying Dan we're just struggling we've got so many lenses, so many different manufacturers, so many different sets uh, in the stage here that we're testing with, and we did have so many lenses, uh, I, I, and I said to Dan, we just can't find the right one. Do you have anything that will work on the LF that's like a holy grail? That's something we didn't know about, something you're just saving or hiding or waiting? And he says, oh, I might actually. <laughs> so so he had uh, two prototype lenses, a 75 and 100, um, that's... They didn't quite know what they were called at that point, but they they knew they fit on the LF. They fit that sensor. They were a one point six five squeeze. So on the size of the Alexa sensor, the LF sensor, it gives a native. It's around right about two three seven. So you just lose the top 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 and bottom couple of rows of pixels, and you've got two three nine, uh, anamorphic. So he he or Laurie sent those lenses out right away, and. Um, we put them on and we knew they were fantastic. They were beautiful. They were great. They were very reminiscent of the Rogue One lenses, mm. the Hateful 8 lenses. Mm. Uh, but um, they worked on a slightly smaller sensor of the LF and they, they were anamorphic. They were beautiful. The Mandalorian helmet is so sharp and hard. It, it, you know, his metallic features are so... Um, Sharp how We didn't want any. We didn't want an image to be. It didn't want it to be too crisp, too clean, because it would just. It would. It, it wouldn't look. It wouldn't look nice. So, um, now the problem was, Dan had to make many, many more lenses. By the time we wanted to start shooting in about four months, because we only had that two. We had seventy-five and hundred. So he ended up building out the set for through fifty through one hundred and eighty. And so those are the lenses that were used on Mandalorian. Wow we had two sets we had two sets we really had one and a half sets and the last half sort of trickled through during the season
0: yeah um, speaking on the virtual sets uh, you know I was excited to talk to you about it just because I think the virtual set technology is only going to become more more the rage especially now as it seems like it might make you know filming under these pandemic conditions uh, there might be advantages there too. Um, but I think when everybody talks about the virtual sets, Mandalorian always comes up. Um, what was it like using that technology, and from your perspective coming onto it, besides maybe like all of the the deep technical, but also in a general sense, did it change your? Did you find that your mental approach to filming was changing at all, and if so, how?
1: When you're on the set and shooting, uh, you, it almost helps to not. Um, change your point of view or your method of shooting because you wanna you wanna just treat it like a regular film set um, that has uh, accurate lighting built in from the the environment that's being displayed on the wall, the ability to frame on everything that uh, is there so. The things that you do need to change are the fact that it's it's actually a, it's a season one it was a seven seventy-five foot diameter circle uh season two it was a teardrop shape 75 foot wide 100 foot long so you have to consider staging um, there are a large number of technical considerations you do have to take into effect um in re- in regards how you lens things how you expose things how you um, how you block a scene so um, yes you do have to change the way that you shoot but the, the goal is that you don't the goal is that you just treat it like any normal film set you go in and you try and shoot it the way that you would normally shoot it yeah, That's the, and it's the better way to think like that at the beginning, as opposed to going and thinking, "Oh, how do I accommodate all of these technical considerations?" That, uh, oh, there, you know, you, It's go in and think, "How do I want to tell a story? What's the most beautiful and best shot so that I can tell a story? And then, what are the shots that complement that? Yeah. Not, um, am I going to see pixels? Is there, you know, uh, all of the other stuff?"
0: And then, in terms of that storytelling for *The Mandalorian*, um, you had such a great rotation of directors. And I'm curious, for someone who was such a mainstay on the show, what it was like to be approaching the same work with a different director at each episode. Um, how do you feel it, the adjustments that you were, that you needed to make for for that, um, and how how you were handling the different types of approaches that, that all these directors were taking.
1: I'd only had one experience before this about working with multiple directors on a project, before, and that was my only one other uh, experience of working on a, on a TV show. Uh, as a camera assistant, I never really worked. I might have done the odd day, but when I say the odd day, I mean like maybe a handful of days over my career on a TV show uh, as a camera assistant. But on on um, I operated for Nigel Black on season two of um, True Detective, and so we had multiple directors on that, um, and that was fascinating. I, I was um, didn't bother me. Uh, I mean, I mean, it was didn't bother me. is a silly phrase to say. Uh, I, uh, I find it very. I found it very interesting, and um, uh, and it di- and it didn't change the way that I worked. Yeah. Uh, um. So Mandalorian. I was. I. I Greg and I had spoken about it in the beginning as being something that would be unusual but we also knew that it was going to be very valuable because for the two of us because we would have be would get the experience of working during a six-month block on a project of working with different directors and every director is going to bring something different to the party that you can learn from that you can uh, enjoy that you can um, uh, bounce off you can work with it's it's it it's, it's important to have a collaborative relationship with a director because it needs to be, you know, DP director is. It's so important to have have that relationship where uh, the sum of the parts is greater. Um, the sum is greater than the parts. Yeah. So. Um, So, so I, I really liked, I really, I loved working with multiple directors. You know, season, season one, I worked with, um, obviously, Dave Filoni shot, shot the first episode, and that was his first experience at shooting live action. Uh, but what he didn't know in production methodology for a live action set, he, um, exponential, exponentially knew more. Uh, about either Star Wars or storytelling or, or um, uh, the narrative of of why and what we were making. Um, Rick Famuyiwa directed episodes two and seven, and uh, he was a treat. Uh, uh, I, lo- I loved his um, uh, I-, I loved his understanding of drama. Uh, that first episode, episode two was you know there's no nobody there's no dialogue for the first twelve minutes or something like that. It's this beautiful exploration of character as Mando's just got the child and uh, trying to do everything. There's no words and no no face either. You know it's just the child and Mando in the helmet. Uh, Deb Chow was was fantastic. She was the the more uh, she had more TV in her mm-hmm. uh, resume than any of the other directors. And so she came in with uh, with a great attitude of, you know, this is what I want to do and this is how I want to do it. And she was very enjoyable to work with. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard was just so enjoyable to work with because she's so emotional and so uh, emotionally collect- connected with the, the drama and, uh, really so enjoyable to work with. Her. I loved working with her on, working with her on her episode. Um, I'm an old romantic at heart, and so um, there's there's definitely hints of romance in that episode. And, and so she was the right director for that.
0: Yeah, and then lastly um, was was Taika
1: Tika was great. He was a lot of fun. So um, I uh, I loved working with him. He was great. He's a man on the go. He's very busy. And, uh, um, but he knows what he wants. And, uh, but, you know, we we had some great comedy scenes, but also, um, you know, we shot some really great drama. He was very enjoyable to work with. And the great thing about Tycho is that obviously he's a Kiwi and I'm a Kiwi. And um, we we had the shorthand that made things very easy to work together that... uh, I was, it was just it was, it was it was very satisfying
0: working with Tyka. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think for me, at least as a viewer, I felt, and obviously, you know, knowing a little bit more than the average viewer and how things might change and stuff, I just really felt like I, you got Tyka's presence in his episodes, and obviously, a lot of that has to do with the scene, um, you know, that that what I guess is now a famous scene from that season with the two um, stormtroopers chatting, and it had such that you know Tyka type of dialogue um when you're on set were you could you feel that shift and not 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 just in the way that the set's being handled and you know th- that you're obviously working with a different person but could you feel the shift that was happening with the content
1: uh well that scene was had been funny on the page for six months of prep yeah so we were certainly looking forward to shooting it um there was a wild amount of ad-libbing on the day that I do hope at some point they release that scene as perhaps its own little 15-minute moment. Um, I'm sorry, can you repeat the question?
0: As a viewer, I, I was, I'm was i able to tell in the general overall vibe and tone that like it's being directed by someone else and that it has a different feeling. And Taika's was the strongest in that, and I think because his, his style felt... Kind of the strongest on the work in a, in a positive way. I love those episodes, and I'm curious if when you're a part of creating that, if you could feel that.
1: Yeah, I think a reverence, a word that's often used for Taika, um, but he's not. Um, yeah, well, we yeah. knew it was a funny episode. We, there, it, it, the episode, we knew the episode had had funny parts, but um, but Taika did bring something special with his sense of comedy and his comic timing mm. and whether it was that one scene of comedy at the beginning of the episode or there was this other sense of of um, joy in the environment and joy in what we were doing. You know, perhaps sometimes maybe people can think that uh, Star Wars takes itself too seriously, but George Lucas made Star Wars for the kids. Yeah. The first Star Wars movies were made, you know, for – Enthusiastic, twelve to sixteen-year-olds, not over serious forty-year-olds. Right. So that take themselves too serious. So that you know that's that's perhaps what's something that Taika brought back into it. That this is crazy adventure. It's also the end of the episode. So there was a lot that was going to be either revealed or, you know, there was some bad stuff that happened. You know, both mm-hmm. Ig and Ukonot died, which was sorry, spoiler alert. Um, that that. Um, I remember talking to John Favreau on the day that Ig was dying, saying, "This is really bad because we're killing a main character." And he says, "Keeps it real." So, you know, that was. Ta- Taika was the perfect director for that episode, mm-hmm. so that we didn't um, we didn't dwell on the bad things, and uh, but but enjoyed enjoyed all of the good moments.
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's well put. That's awesome. Um, and I guess, you know, we're, we're coming up on the end of the hour. Um, we we'll have to do a lot of editing on that last no, one. No, it's, like, it's, it, it, it's, it's all real. good. No, I know that sometimes these questions are like, you know, I never think about it that way. And so I, I, I totally understand. Um, what kind of work are you hoping to do moving forward? Did you enjoy the process of this kind of episodic stuff with The Mandalorian? Would you want to do that more? Are you trying to stick with films? Where, where do you hope um, your cinematography work heads?
1: We just wrapped season two, which I love. It's going to be better. It's going to be well, I don't know, better because season one was pretty good, but it's going to be great. Yeah, and I can't, I can't wait to see it, and I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's, it's such a technical dive into what we did in the uh, we we got we went further and and uh, in a more exciting way into using the LED technology, um, but the story is so fantastic. I can't wait. Can't wait for it. Um, I loved working on uh, on episodic. I thought it was actually quite exciting having this uh, shorter sense of um, shorter periods of focus on different stories. But I do love filmmaking um, in long form, obviously. Um, I, I'd love to stay involved in the uh, Mandalorian world. Um, and hopefully will, but I think I'm probably going to go off and do a film. I awesome. Can't say too much of what that is.
0: No, 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 no worries about that. Um, well, yeah, it's been it's been great chatting with you, and I think that you know, especially when it comes to the Mandalorian, it was just so exciting to watch, especially knowing the weight that was put on the final trilogy and um, the way that it took itself very seriously, and that it has just the Mandalorian stood out as something. Um, a fresh take on that world and it was so much it was just so fun and entertaining and i think a lot of that had to do with how it looked and how it was shot and so um i've been looking forward to this conversation and i'm, I'm really thankful for the uh the hour learning about your career and, and, and chatting about it with you
1: it was my pleasure thanks jerry
0: thank you